if you're lost and you can't find your way, you might want to start here. Maybe this will just be the beginning or maybe just like the rest of us, this is what sustains us. Mm. That yeah. works for me. I'm, I'm good with that. You got to You're listening to Karen Swain, teacher of deliberate creation, accentuating the positive, showing you a way to a better life. Accentuating the positive, it's not just bad, it's sanity. Who in their right mind would accentuate anything else? got a gorgeous man on Skype with me called Omar Pinto. He says, call me O. He's the host and the founder of a podcast show called Share. It's a podcast show about amazing stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world with their stories of recovery. Omar, how are you? Great to have you on the show. I'm doing wonderful, Karen. I'm very excited to be here. (laughs) Hasn't he got a great voice for a podcast? I love it. Now, better. <laughs> I find this really, really fantastic because I work as a teacher, an intuitive coach or counsel or guide. I've seen and spoken to a lot of people who have had addiction problems. And I really believe that one of the things that helps them is to hear how other people got over it. Because when you feel like you've got this problem, whatever problem it is, and you feel alone and you It seems insurmountable. And uh, when you can hear other people's stories of how they transformed their lives, how they got over their problem, to me that is the most empowering thing. So congratulations on your podcast. Well, thank you very much. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback, both from the recovery community and even the non-recovery community of other podcasters that have heard it and have been, I've, I've gotten really great feedback. It's been wonderful. Now, you say here that you've been in recovery for 11 years, and before that, you spent four years in denial about being a drug addict. What was your story? What happened? Well, uh, do you want the short version or the long version? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you want to give me, baby. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I guess I'll just start from the beginning. When I was younger, I was a very, it's hard to believe for most people, I was very shy and very introverted. I always felt different. During high school, I was very awkward and I didn't have a lot of friends. And it wasn't until I was 17 years old when I had my first drink at a party that everything changed for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my, my personality came to life. I was funny. I was dynamic. I was a part of, I didn't feel different. I didn't feel strange. And I loved that feeling. So that was my first experience with drinking. And of course, that first time that I drank, I got wasted. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just got completely drunk. I, I came home uh, from my first party, basically, that my parents had let me go to. And my father was just furious. He goes, I can't believe I, I let you go to this party and you're, you, know, you come home drunk. <laughs> you know? And so that was my first experience with, with drinking. It, 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 wasn't, it wasn't positive when I got home. But when I was in that moment, at that time, it was my first experience with being in the moment. Oh I didn't God. recognize. You've taken that? me. You've taken me right back to my fourteen, to being fourteen, and exactly the same thing happened. Exactly, exactly. Came home wasted. My mother was so angry, but I had had such a good time. Well, keep okay. Keep going. And you were fourteen. I was fourteen. Yeah. You beat me. Yeah, I was young, <laughs> naughty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, it was it was my first experience with being in the moment. For the most part, I was either regretting the past or hoping for the future. And I had a very difficult time being in the now. Yeah. And so um, once I started, once I discovered that magic formula of drinking 
and the magical effects of it, then I wanted more of it. So mm. suffice it to say that my senior year and my college years were absolutely the best times of my life. Because once, once I picked up drinking, then every time I went out, every time I was going to be with friends, there had to be drinking involved. There's no way I could have gone out and socialized and felt comfortable unless I was drinking. And it was always just escalations of drinking. Uh, my family, long line of heavy drinkers. We were all just a big family of drinkers. So it, it never seemed out of place. And no one ever said the word alcoholic. Mm. No, the, the words alcoholic never came out of anyone's mouth. Mm. Um, and in retrospect, if you would have looked at the kind of drinking that my family did, there was certainly quite a bit of alcoholism. I didn't see a whole lot of consequences until after I got out of college and I got my first DUI. And that's when I started to see real consequences in my life of maybe I might have a problem. Maybe um, this drinking too much is now I started to deliver some consequences that I wasn't prepared with. So I spent my first and only night in jail, thank God. And I remember that night clearly. I was out with a friend of mine and we were out drinking and partying at a club and I was wasted. I was so drunk and my buddy's like, oh man, I don't know if we can make it home. I said, let's just sleep it off in the car. So there we are sleeping in a parking lot inside my car, trying to get the alcohol to come down. And I guess it would have been about maybe 4, 4.30 in the morning. I wake up and I think to myself, okay, I think I'm good. I think I can, I think I can drive home. And I start the car and I get about a block down the road and the flashing lights go on right behind me. It's almost as though the cop was just sitting there behind me waiting for me to turn the car on. <laughs> waiting for you to make a dumb decision. Absolutely. Yeah. I just remember the feeling of I looked over at my friend and I said, dude, I'm going to jail. Yeah, that's I mean, I knew it. I knew I was done. And uh, the cop told me to roll down the window and he says, okay, I need you to step out of the car. And I didn't put up a struggle. I might have even said, listen, man, I, you know, I, I'll save you the trouble. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you might as well just take me in. Yeah. So, <laughs> so my license was suspended. Did it stop me from driving? No. But it did stop me from drinking. I went six months without drinking. And so for me, that was another testament, another example of I'm not an alcoholic. If I can stop drinking for six months, then that means that I'm, I don't have a drinking problem. I can stop whenever I want. And um, they made you go to a DUI school, which I, you have to go and you have to sign in. And they also required me to go to 14 AA meetings. And I went to my first AA meeting and they told me, well, at first I came in, I couldn't identify with anyone in there. There was people sharing their stories, sharing their experiences, and all I kept thinking to myself was, what a bunch of losers. <laughs> I mean, listen to these guys just sharing their experiences. Oh, my God. I can't believe you'd get up in front of people and actually admit these things. What is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, <laughs> yeah. I was so ridiculously yeah, in That's a river that runs through Egypt. <laughs> Denial. <laughs> I was in a little boat just rowing through it, just <laughs> mercilessly 
and, and deliriously just rowing through this river. And I just remember walking up to that after the meeting was over. I said, hey, who's in charge around here? And he looked at me and he says, nobody's in charge here. What can I do for you? Well, I've somebody's, I, I got to have somebody sign this court card. He goes, oh, one of those. And I said, yeah, yeah, I need this court card signed. Who, who signs it? Who's in charge here? He goes, look, nobody's in charge here. Just whenever you come to a meeting, after the meeting, ask the person who's chairing to sign the card. You mean anybody can sign this card? He goes, yes, anybody that's this meeting can sign the card. I go, oh, great. Oh, thank you. So I went home, grabbed three different pens, did about 14 different signatures, <laughs> and I was done with my AA commitment. You're giving people ideas. <laughs> Listen, if you end up in an AA meeting, I don't care how it is, whether the court ordered you or you stumbled on it by accident, it wasn't an accident. Yeah, yeah. You might have a problem with yeah. alcohol. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I basically, I, much of my life was about getting over. The addictions bled into a lot of different areas. And one of my addictions was, was getting over, getting away with things. And so I felt this enormous rush from, you know, driving without my driver's license for six months perfectly and never getting pulled over. Um, I got my driver's license back and nothing ever happened. So for me, it was like I got away with something and I went yeah. and I got over and I didn't have to go to those AA meetings with those weirdos. All right. I got over on them. And so my behavior was always more of, you know, how do I get the things that I want and not pay the consequences of other people instead of what, you know, what's your show is so powerful about, which is the law of attraction. It's just about aligning yourself positively with what you want and just believing in it. But I had no idea that those concepts were foreign. And as a matter of fact, if you would have brought those up to me, I would have thought you were some kind of freak. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's interesting. How old were you at the time when you had all these ideas about yourself? Like you're, you were young, right? I was 25. Yeah. But it's a different, I find it's a different world we live in. The younger kids are much more open to that conversation of law of attraction than maybe we were or other generations. That's what I find. Oh. I agree 100%, but I think it has a lot to do with our generation. I think our generation introduces it more freely to yeah. the younger generations. Yeah. You know, my daughter is 12 years old. I'm constantly speaking in ways that try and, and enlighten her and bring her into that aspect of always thinking positively about herself and about what she's doing and trying to find her passion in life and, yeah. and allowing that passion to to motivate her in the direction that she that she wants to go into and whatever that may be allow that to just kind of guide you allow those passions and allow your your mind to guide you in a positive way those aren't some things my parents would have ever taught me yeah exactly mine yeah. either yeah no my parents were my mother's a jehovah's witness wow so i come from a very strict religious background um, and there was a lot of a, a very militant sort of thought process uh, the religious aspect or the God aspect of it was, was punishing. So it, mm. it was, it was something that I certainly rebelled from the beginning. I uh, was never a willing participant <laughs> in, mm. in being in, in that religion. I wanted to s steer away from it. And, and, 
And I tell you, when I was about, when I was 18 years old, I, I walked away from that religion completely. I told my mom, I want nothing to do with that religion. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to live my life. And I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Since obviously my decisions and in my life are going to provoke that I'm going to have to pay to a certain degree for my actions, then, you know, it's almost like any drug addict or alcoholic, which I am. If I relapse, I'm not going to go out, have a beer, and then come back to the rooms and say, ooh, I had a beer. I'm going to go out and drink everything I possibly can, inhale everything I possibly can, smoke everything I possibly can until I've spent every penny I have, and then I'm going to come back and say, oh, I think I need to start over again. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, to, person, to tell you the truth, person, I, I don't understand that because I'm someone who can or can't drink. It's like I don't have the addict the addict sort of thing. and um, I, But I see a lot of it. I see a lot of it with friends and clients and a lot of people in denial too, you know, in that little boat down that river. But here's the thing. There's a couple of things that you said. You said, um, I want to do it my way. I want to have the freedom to discover the world the way I want to do it. And so mum and dad, thank you, but I don't want your ideology. Like that is the mantra of every young person. I want to do it my way. I want to feel the way I want to feel and then life throws alcohol at you or drugs at you and you find that freedom and that feeling inside a drug and so it's not surprising to me that so many people think that that is the be all and end all to life like feeling good everyone's looking to feel good I don't think there's anything that we want in life that we think that in the having of it we're going to feel good whether it's money or success or love or health or anything that we're looking for we think you know when I get that I'm going to feel good and then a drug comes along and you instantly feel good and that freedom you said the first time that you got drunk you felt free for the first time yes yes and the thing about it was more importantly that those feelings those thought processes are so unnatural. It's, it's not a natural state of being. What yeah. we're seeking, at least what I've discovered in my life through the process of, through the drug addictions and the alcohol abuse, is that what I was searching for was the thing that I rebelled against from the beginning, which was a spiritual connection. You know, we all have this, this void inside of us that we need to fill. And so you either fill it with spirituality and a connection with a higher power, or you fill it with something else. You fill it with drugs or sex or food or buying things, constantly trying to fill that void with material things or, or pleasurable things. It's an insatiable appetite. It'll, it never gets filled because it's completely self-centered and mm. there's, there's, there's no what I've discovered in my life and, and the reason why I do the podcast is to help others. The, the whole purpose that we are here for, we all have a purpose. I believe my purpose is to carry my message, uh, my story of hardship and drug abuse and rock bottom and my recovery, finding my recovery and finding my relationship with a higher power. And within that story where others like me can relate and they listen, they, you know, they can, they can relate to the same decisions and consequences that I've had to face and go, man, I've been there. I know what that guy's going through. I'm going through that right now. Mm -hmm. What did you do to get out of that? Yeah, exactly. Kind of 
I think I have, uh, I have exactly the same view as you, but I have a different perspective of it. I think the freedom that we're all looking for inside the money, the sex, the drugs, the whatever, the fame, the fortune, is the freedom to feel like we're in control and we are at cause to our life. Like it's that not to feel like a victim. We can choose how we want to feel. We can choose to feel good or to feel bad. We have choice. That's the freedom we're all looking for. We're all looking for the freedom to be able to create the life we want. And when we don't feel good, we look for remedies outside of ourselves in order to make us feel good. We look for it in sex, in drugs, in rock and roll. No, we look for it in any way, shape we can, but the answers are within. What do you think, O? Absolutely, absolutely. And there is, for the most part, I believe that we all have a path, we all have a journey, and within that journey, within that path, we're all seeking those things. What I've learned is that at the core, at least at the core of, of my disease, is fear and self-centeredness. Yeah. And that fear and self-centeredness prevents me from, from seeing these opportunities, from, from connecting with other people, from thinking about other people. It forces me to constantly be worried about that, you know, I'm going to lose something that I have. Something's going to, someone's going to take something of mine. There's those fears as constant, that self-centered fear. And the only way to get out of that self-centered fear is to help other people. Yeah, I and agree. Absolutely. The idea, or at least bringing that into today's generation, at least for my daughter, for example, I was raised in a very, first of all, my dad's Colombian and my mother's Cuban, so I'm Latin. And I come from a very Latin machista, very male-dominated family environment. My dad, we used to call him the warden because whatever he said went. This is my house. These are my rules. This is how things are going to be. You don't question me. If you don't like it, there's the door. And that was basically the upbringing. So there was, there was never any room for questioning. There was never any room for suggestions. It was my way or the highway. And those are the things that, as I've gotten older, I've absolutely taken out of my, my vocabulary, taken out of my mindset. I want my daughter to, to be able to freely come and, and talk to me about anything, about drugs, about boys, about school, about, you know, being sad or about being whatever kind of feelings that she's going through. I want her to be able to come to me. That's not typically the case. She's 12 years old right now, and she doesn't really talk to me about anything anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's I've already twelve. <laughs> I've already started to feel the shift, the, the the change in that. But she's such an important factor in my life. Um, you know, when I moved, I moved to Costa Rica uh, fifteen years ago, and I came to Costa Rica to, to get involved in the online gaming business. It's a very lucrative business, uh, but it's also. Uh, an environment and an, and an industry that's just loaded with drug abuse and, and alcoholism. And the lifestyle is very casino-esque. When you yeah. think about Las Vegas and you think about casinos, you think about the parties, the women, you know, as far as men goes, you know, you, you have this concept of what it must be like. And living in Costa Rica, the rules are very different than they are in the States. And so you, you, you come down and you have this kind of mentality of, I can do whatever I want. 
And I hadn't really done drugs. I was more of a drinker when I was in the States. But when I moved to Costa Rica is when I first got introduced to cocaine, ecstasy and mushrooms and just about anything else. Yeah, everything's on the the smorgasbord down there, huh? Everything's on the table just Mm. like a buffet. Mm. And it's it's a very socially accepted way of living as far as my industry is, is concerned. And so the first time that I did cocaine, it, it took me to another level. That was an, another level that, I, that anyone that's listening to this or, or has, has tried it, they know they either did not like it and they said, uh, uh, this is not for me, or they absolutely loved it and they thought it was the most incredible feeling they'd ever felt in their life. It was a feeling of invincibility. I'm the smartest guy in the room. The I can talk. I'm, I'm charismatic. I'm powerful. It's just this this false sense of security that just overwhelms you. And it did. It, it completely took over my life. I was within four years. My cocaine abuse had allowed me to build two businesses, get married. And then at the same time, within four years, destroy all the businesses, end up in divorce, alienate all my friends, and end up basically an outcast. At the time, my ex-wife was pregnant. She was eight months pregnant. And I was just at my worst. I, I could not stop. I was losing everything. Things were just dropping off around me. And I, I couldn't stop as much as I wanted to. And then um, when my daughter was born, I held her right when she was just a couple of hours old. And I was, and I'm staring at my daughter and I felt so sorry for her. And I just kept thinking, oh man, your dad is a degenerate drug addict disaster. Like, oh my God, I don't want to be this person. I, I don't want this anymore. And I, I just... And I just remember there was that moment in my life where I was like, God, either take me out of this world or help me get clean because I don't want to be a drug addict dad to this little girl. Yeah. I don't want to be that guy. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was one of my first experiences with a higher power because I remember there was this brief moment of clarity and this warm feeling, this connection that I had. And I, really, I'm, I'm glossing over. There's, it's, it's a lot more detailed, that whole experience. But I remember praying for death. I remember asking God to either take me out of this world or help me change, help me recover. Because I didn't want to stop using and I didn't want to keep using. And I just didn't know how or what to do. And I had gone to a therapist and he had told me, listen, you're a drug addict. I can't help you you need to go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I shrugged it off. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not, listen, I'm not, I don't, I'm not a drug addict. You know, I have a problem with cocaine. All right, so I'm fine. You can fix me. You know, 10 months later, I remember those words. Just like that was my, that was my spiritual awakening. That vision just kind of popped into my head and, and there's a little voice said, remember that? Psychologist told you you might, want to check out those meetings. And that's what I did. I went straight to the psychiatrist, I, a psychologist, and I said, listen, I have relapsed. I can't stop using. I need to get to one of those meetings. And he gave me the directions and he gave me a phone number. 
And I went, and this was back in October, on October 5th, 2002. Were you still living in Costa Rica at the time, or were you back in the States? Oh, no. I never left Costa Rica. I stayed in Costa Rica. You know, listening to your story, I'm thinking of that movie Limitless. Have you seen that movie Limitless? It's about a guy who discovers a drug and, uh, yes. and, he, feels, and he feels limitless. Now, who's the yes. actor? Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper. And Correct. if you haven't seen the movie and you don't want to know the end, turn off now because I'm going to t- tell you the end. <laughs> because the end of the movie has this twist where there's all this corruption about making the drug and having it available and making the money from the drug. And as most drug stories go, but at the end of the movie, someone's trying to bribe him. And he's discovered how to feel that limitless feeling without the drug. You know, how to feel like you were describing being on cocaine, like invincible and clear and, and have perfect clarity and, and make decisions sharply and, you know, build businesses and all that sort of stuff. So he's, dis- he's discovered how to become that without needing any sort of external force. Yeah, it's, it's quite a good message in the movie, I find, actually. I saw the movie. I don't remember that part of it. At the end, he, he finds a way to get that clarity without the drug. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the thing about the drug is it makes him superhuman smart. And right. superhuman sort of psychic. He could read everyone's thoughts. He can look inside right. bodies. It's, you know, it's a Hollywood movie, so it's like ramped up what he can do. He can almost levitate and fly through the air. He's almost like a superhuman and so wanted this drug and, and everyone wants it and, and he needs it to sort of maintain his lifestyle. So he becomes super famous, super rich and he's talking to politicians and everyone in the world wants to know him and meet him and, and somebody finds out how to manufacture the drugs and tries to bribe him. And at the end he said, don't you think that being as smart as I was, I'd figure out how to be this without the drug? Ah. I'm going to have to rewatch that movie. I have it. <laughs> I've got it in my library. I'm going to rewatch it now. Yeah, I thought you know, it was. I, I might just watch the ending. I thought, yeah, exactly. Well, I thought it was a great message because, you know, really that's the message of, to me of when you do connect to your source. It is a source of infinite clarity and infinite intelligence and infinite possibility. And all you need to do is connect to it and, and feel that intimacy with the infinite and you have that feeling that any drug can give you. So you have it. It's all there, you know. You don't need an external source. You can have that clarity and that smart thinking and intelligence and and compassion and love. You can have it all. It's all there. Haven't you found that th- through your spiritual practice? Oh, there's no question about it. And I was just about to say that feeling, that high, yeah. that chasing, it's called chasing a high yeah. because whatever drug that you take, the first time you take it, it's fantastic. And maybe for the first few months or the first year, it, it would be fantastic. But it always tapers off. It loses its luster. It loses its invincibility. It loses all of its powers. And then it just turns on you like a mm. pit bull. Mm. And, it, and, it, and it just starts to eat you from the inside out. Yeah. And when, you, when I made that decision, I remember... When I asked God for help in that moment, and I said, God, I don't know who you are or where you are, and I know I walked away from you, you know, 20 years ago, but if you're out there, help me. And, and I felt that, that higher power reaching out and grab my hand and take me to that meeting. And as soon as I sat in that meeting for that first time, it wasn't like it was when I was at that first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. I identified with every single person in that room. Yeah. I identify with every story in that room. Yeah. 
And I, I boldly felt, said, "My, how's that? You felt connected. I was 100% connected. connected. Yeah. I said, my name's Omar and I'm an addict. And it, it was the most liberating and freeing experience of my life. And in that moment, for the first time in a very long time, I felt hope. And I felt like, oh my God, I can do this. Just one day at a time, I can do this. And cold turkey, that moment, that day, I stopped everything. I didn't, no, no smoking, no drinking, no nothing. I just completely turned it all off. And it was in, it was in that moment of surrender that on uh, May 26, 2003, was uh, the last time I ever used a mood or mind-altering substance. That was, I was done. Mm. And that was, so I'm coming up on 12 years. As a matter of fact, May 26th of this month, I will, ha I will have completed 12 years clean and sober. Mm. Look, there's something to be said about the power of a powerful decision. Powerful decisions change your life. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you one thing is for sure. Regardless of whether you get into a fellowship or you know, whether it's AANA or whatever spiritual or yoga or whatever path that you go, that you choose to go through, if you can't find a path that takes you out of yourself, that allows you to take your hardships or think about all the wonderful things that she could be doing exactly. in her own community and helping others. And, and, and that in and of itself, like we were talking about, that's a high. That those, those feelings associated with helping other people are incredibly uh, fulfilling and intoxicating feelings that have absolutely no, no drug or alcohols associated with them whatsoever. And, and I promise you, you're not trying to kill yourself when, when you're feeding, you know, hungry people or, or, or helping other people that, that have had uh, drug problems or whatever, you know, there's, there's tons of causes out there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I know. I'll tell you this much. I'm not miserable. You know, my life is fantastic. I help a lot of people. I've sponsored lots of guys. Yeah. And I have felt feelings that I never, you know, higher. I've been higher than I've ever been like with any other say, drug. Yeah. Like you said before, Costa Rica is just a plethora of everything. Yeah. Everything's on the table. I would imagine that there are plenty of people, plenty of people to help. Tons. There's plenty of people to help in the world. There's a charity here in Sydney called hello sunday morning and it helps people look at their life without alcohol it's not about being an alcoholic or recovery it's about do you need to drink every time you go out do you need to drink every week every month how about you do three months without drinking without any sort of drugs even coffee take a break what does your life look like when you do what does your life look like when you're not relying on an external source to give you that bravado and that courage you need or to feel free? You know, what would Sunday morning look like if you woke up without a hangover? Like, hello, Sunday morning. <laughs> it's just that message to people to not rely on an external source to feel good to rely on their own ability to feel good, their own ability to choose how they want to feel. You don't need the drugs or the alcohol. So it's not really about recovery or alcoholism. It's just about how alcohol is so rife in our society and we don't need to rely on it to enjoy our lives. 
And also, you need to substitute it with something else. If you're not drinking, then what are you doing? So are you walking? Are you meditating? Are you taking yoga? Are you reading? Are you joining a book club? Are you spending more time with friends that don't drink? I mean, the list is long of things that you could be doing to ensure that not only are you not using alcohol as a crutch, but that you're also enjoying your life. I mean, you have to add to it. Life is about adding value, not just about staying alive. Because, I mean, I did a lot of that. I went, After I got divorced, I started doing yoga and, and I started meditating and I, I started reading about feng shui and redecorating my house. And, you know, I took a, a vow of, cel- of celibacy for a year. I made it 10 months. Mm. Yeah, and so there's these, there's all these different things is, you know, you're filling your life with these different experiences um, because that's what life is all about. Life is about experiencing, finding your passion, finding you, your life's calling, whatever that may be. And you're not going to find it by just stopping drinking or using drugs and then hiding in your house. You, know, you have to find, you know, okay, so now I've stopped doing this. Now I need to start adding new things into my life. And I need to, more importantly, start contributing to society. What can I do to contribute to society? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. When I was in my early 30s, I was doing a lot of hands-on healing. I was doing a lot of channeling energy into people. I was working as a masseuse and a whole lot of things were happening where I got to see a whole lot of energy and people's thought, I could read people's thoughts and I could see into their, into their life, into their future and their past and all sorts of things. And I started studying energy healing. And I figured that drinking and smoking and doing and taking any sort of drug really was not conducive to energy, to channeling energy. So I stopped all sort of substance caffeine. I was smoking. I think I was smoking at the time and alcohol. And so for five years, I didn't touch any alcohol and living life without alcohol was eye opening. It was just eye opening. People could not understand that I was not a recovering alcoholic of any way, shape or form, but that I chose not to drink. It just, it just did not compute. It just, and my girlfriend's just argued with me the whole time. They were just like, oh, come on, have a drink. What's wrong with you? Don't be stupid. Just have a drink. I'm like, I'm just choosing not to. It's not something I want to do. And they ju- people couldn't get it. They just could not get it. But here's the thing about this. There were so many firsts, like first date without having alcohol as to prop you up and all these firsts that people use alcohol to sort of overcome and I noticed that people were born they drank people died they drank people had birthdays you drank the queen would celebrate you know something it was drink like alcohol was involved in everything we did with our life and I didn't see that until I stopped drinking it was just like wow how pervasive it is it's absolutely true and for five years think about all the all the wonderful first that you had the first time you went to a movie, you know, the first time, you know, you, you enjoyed a meal without, usually you're drinking prior to eating. You show up, you get the drinks going, then you order dinner and then you continue the drinking. So how was the meal? And so, so now you're eating, you're eating a meal and it's completely untainted. It's, it's untarnished, so to speak. 
So, mm. no, I get it. There's mm. a lot of wonderful eye-opening experiences that happen just removing, well, it is. It's a mood and mind-altering substance. So it's going to change your state. The question you have to ask yourself is, why do I want to change my state? What's wrong with being in a natural state of being so that I can appreciate everything that's going on around me? It might be uncomfortable. It might be difficult at first, but that's part of the learning process. Mm. So what do I need to learn about myself in this uncomfortable time where I'm not drinking that I need to improve upon? Yeah, exactly. I remember I went to a party. A girlfriend had a big party, birthday party. She built a big house and she had this big party. It was very glamorous and beautiful, fabulous. The champagne was flowing. And I was dancing and hugging everyone and laughing and having a fabulous time. And then at the end of the night, I'm like, I'm going home now. And people are saying, you can't drive. You're too drunk. And I said, but I don't drink. <laughs> They refused to believe that I wasn't drunk because of the way I was acting because I was just like having a rip-roaring time and people just thought, well, in order to be that happy <laughs> and that free that you'd have to be drunk. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. It is <laughs> unbelievable that most people would just assume that the life of the party has to be wasted. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, exactly. I know. It's crazy, isn't I, it? I used to travel to Amsterdam for our conferences. And of course, Amsterdam is just a party mecca, right? So I would get out there with my whole crew and we would have to go to nightclubs. Even within the conference, they would have bars throughout the conference. So people would be drinking, smoking, whatever, almost the entire conference. And we would get to these certain events and we're just laughing and having a great time. And they would say, oh, man, this is just the best party ever, man. Oh, let's get another ground going. And I would be like, oh, no, 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 but I don't drink. What are you talking about? What do you mean you don't drink? You're not drinking right now? I said, no, I don't drink. You got to be kidding me. I just remember that didn't happen once or twice. You know, once I'm in the environment and I'm going, plus the whole idea is to mix and mingle and make friends and develop relationships. So, you know, you have to fit in. And so they're just assuming that, oh, my behavior and my electricity is all coming from alcohol and zero. I'm 100% sober. Too good. So today you run a multi-million dollar online business and as a way of service and giving back, you have a share podcast sharing people's recovery stories. What's some of the most amazing stories that you've heard? Bobby G has one of the most amazing stories. He was my number two story. This is a man who battled 39 years of the disease. I went through four and a half before I hit absolute rock bottom. He went through 30, over 30 years. Yeah. And the man died twice. Part of his story was he was on... Uh, it was in the hospital, and he'd flatlined, all right? He was dead. And uh, they were just about to pronounce him dead, and they brought him back to life. They had to remove all of his intestines because they were so swollen, just distended from all the drug and alcohol abuse that two weeks later, because they put him in a coma, and he wakes up, and he 
looks and, and he's like, whose intestines are those? And the nurse says, those are yours. And he looks and he goes, whoa, man, I could really use a cigarette right now. And, and I mean, you hear these stories of these, of these people and the horrific things that they go through. And, and the first thing they want to do is put some more chemicals into their bodies. I know. <laughs> it's you know? crazy, isn't it? Why not? I've seen no, no, it. What? I've no, seen and, it. Oh, no. And, and not only that, but he, he spent over a month in the hospital before they would release him. And when they released him, he asked the doctor, hey, so is there anything that I need to know? And I didn't know, you're good to go. He was back at the drug dealers within a week. Yeah. And back to drinking and back to using. And boom, ended up back in the hospital again. I mean, these are the kinds of insane, again, it's, it's so unbelievably insane, the things that we do because we've completely lost control of ourselves and of reality. And again, many of us, it's that whole getting over. Yeah. I'll show you. No one's going to tell me what to do. I know better. Yeah. And and we lose our families. He, at this point, had already lost his wife, lost his kids, divorced, was living in another country, and was about to remarry. It's just this, this absolutely hedonistic sort of relationship. So did he recover? Yes. He's got seven years now. How did he manage it? Because, you know, I'm an admirer of Bruce Lipton, who is an epigenetic scientist, and he talks about how our subconscious mind really runs our life. We think our dreams and our wants and our desires can be fulfilled, but what's really running on us is those sort of created beliefs about who we are that lie in our subconscious mind that just keep repeating. You're not good enough. You never get what you want. You can't do it. And even though you might want it to happen, want to change your life, there's this, this constant playing of these subconscious thoughts that are really running, it's really running the show. And so anyone that gets over those things has done it in a way where they've been able to change those ideas about themselves on a cellular level. So what did he do? He remarried and he was using like a fiend. And then I, I think I th I'm pretty sure it was the second hospital visit. I think at that point he was he was just done. The story was so up and down all over the place that I just at, at one point, kind of like me or just kind of like the rest of us, you just get to that point where you recognize that if you continue any longer, I'm not going to skirt death anymore. Oh, he got an infection. That's what it was. He got an infection when they did the second surgery. He relapsed. He had to go back in. They had to do another surgery. Now, at this point, he'd been eating. His, his diet was like hamburgers, Taco Bell, whiskey, and cocaine. Obviously, the diet was at a loss. And one of the little sesame seeds from the burger buns got lodged in one of the stitches and created this ridiculous infection that almost killed him, if you can believe it. Yeah. All right? And so at, at that Th 39 point... 39 years of drug abuse, and, and what almost kills him is a seed off a burger bun. <laughs> <laughs> it was, listen, it was funny. We were... My wife, uh, she listens to all the podcasts, and I remember we were, we were driving to... We were going on a getaway weekend... And I said, hey, listen, I got to listen to Bobby's podcast before it goes live. Let's listen to it on our way. Her jaw dropped for about a, an entire half an hour. 
as he's telling this unbelievable story. But ultim- ultimately, it's just like the rest of us. You, you wake up one day and you actually wish you're dead. And it, it's usually in that moment where you, you know how to get to a meeting. You, somebody has already told you or advised you that you might have a problem with drugs and alcohol. You might want to go to a meeting. And he was kind of tricked into it because he was switching jobs and he was going to go work for this other company. And the, the guy that worked there was in the program. And he says, okay, well, to get this job, you have to go to a meeting once a week. And he's like, meeting once a week? Piece of cake, not a problem. Well, what happened was the guy who hired him, his son was the one that was actually his direct supervisor. And his son was also in the program. And so he shows up, he goes, okay, ready. He goes, yeah, well, you know about the meeting stipulation, right? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your dad says I got to go once a week. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. You got to go once a day. He goes, oh, once a day. Yeah, well, they don't have meetings here in Costa Rica every day. Yeah, you're not going to AA, buddy. You're going to NA. (laughs) And NA stands for Narcotics Anonymous. And he goes, ah, that makes sense. And that saved his life. That saved his life. He started going to meetings again every day. He got very involved in service. And that's the most important part. Is, let me segue a little bit just as far as all of us that do recover. There's a basic theme. There is this absolute destruction that happens in your life. This wreckage you cause. And then there's that rock bottom that you hit. And once you hit that rock bottom, you are now open to allow yourself to recover and you start going to meetings. And it's when you start going to meetings, when you hear these guys talking about how they recovered, service is always the key key factor in them having the kind of life that they have today. What we do once we have been given freely, which is we come to meetings, we get a sponsor, somebody walks us through this process, then it's our obligation to do the same thing. We freely help others and walk them through the same journey. And I've been doing that for 12 years. I've been sponsoring guys. Once I got a year uh, clean and sober, I started sponsoring guys. I started doing, I was an area service representative, which means I would go to the, to the local office there and I would meet once a month and bring back the report from my meeting to the area service meeting. It was once I got into it, once I got, once we get hooked into it, it's it's that same feeling you get from drug use. When you first start using drugs, you get this high from this mood or mind altering substance. But when you start doing service, when you start sponsoring people and giving back, when you start taking commitments, you start to get that high back. Mm. You start to get that unbelievable feeling. and. I love the way one of my uh, one of my guests, Leanne, she calls it she gets God bumps. And for those that don't know what God bumps are, they're, they're goosebumps. Mm. You know, you get these little goosebumps and you, you, you sit across the table from someone and you start to explain to them the journey of recovery and you start to watch them get it. Mm. And it's an indescribable feeling. Yeah, you could say they're, they're like God bumps. 
Well, living is definitely about giving, yeah. Most people find that even when they become multimillionaires, you know, that high of making lots of money or being rich and famous, nothing compares to actually contributing to others in powerful ways. And uh, you see movies start, like Oprah, I mean, look at her. <laughs> she, she reached the top of her game and she couldn't give enough stuff away, you know, looking for that feeling, looking for that feeling. Again, we're all seeking that feeling of feeling good, feeling high, feeling empowered. And it's, yeah, it really is tied up with the contributing to others and giving to others. Living is about giving. There's no question about why I do what I do. Like you said, you know, the, the, I do, I do run a, a multi-million dollar company, but I, I wouldn't be able to do it without this, without recovery, without the fellowship of Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, the, the spiritual principles that I've learned, the, the, the character assets that I was able to, that I've always had, but I was finally able to tap into and develop my leadership skills, my, my communication skills, uh, my business skills, everything that I, that I have, I harnessed by going to these meetings and basically reprogramming all the bad wiring that was in my head and then rewiring and tapping into a power greater than myself. Mm that ultimately brings me to giving it all back and doing service. You know, the podcast is all about allowing people like me to share their story, to share their unbelievable experiences, their rock bottoms, and then their journey into recovery and, and, and really how their life is today. Most of us have these amazing lives. I mean, I got divorced, I lost my business, I was very sick. And now, 12 years later, I just celebrated one year married with my beautiful wife, Marcella. You know, today, my life, my relationships, my relationship with my ex-wife, we're like best friends today. Um, my daughter and I have a wonderful relationship. Um, my wife and I have an unbelievable relationship. In general, my relationships today are all based around spiritual principles. You know, a famous quote by Jim Rome is, you know, you are the average of the five people you spend most amount of time with. I believe that wholeheartedly. You know, the people that I choose my friends very closely. And my closest friends, they're all part of the same fellowship that I'm in, and they all do service the way I do, and, and we all leave, live incredible lives. Beautiful. You know, it's my way of, of giving back. But yeah, that's, that's Where, what I what do. What are you hoping kind of, to do with the podcast? To be quite honest with you, it's just... My first, I started listening to podcasts a couple years ago. Uh, the first one that I listened to was uh, John Lee Dumas. Mm. I had a long commute to work and I just started listening to podcasts and audiobooks. And I just loved the podcast concept. I just loved it. And it just seemed like every day new podcasts were coming up and people were just coming up with new podcast ideas. And I said, we need a really cool recovery podcast where people can you know, share their stories and, and, and help other recovering addicts. And boom, that was it. That was just basically my inspiration. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, I guess what I hope to, to accomplish is just to do as much service as possible. Like if somebody, you know, iTunes, from what I understand, iTunes hit a billion subscribers. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And so if you type in addiction, drug addiction, uh, addiction and recovery stories, addiction and recovery, mine will pop up in iTunes. 
So I'm hoping that anyone that's looking for a podcast to listen to on the way to work that's early in recovery and needs inspiration will find it and it will help them. Because I remember at one point when I first discovered podcasts, that's one of the things I searched for. I said, ooh, you know, let me, let me see if I can find some good uh, recovery stories. And you couldn't and find them. No, I couldn't. Yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't. It was very, very limited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I said, I'm going to make this really cool podcast. You know, I'm, I'm, I've gotten a lot of my friends, they just love it. They're like, dude, this is just the coolest thing ever. I want to be on your podcast. I've got no shortage of guests. I will tell you that much. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. We, we all love to tell our stories. Yeah, people do <laughs> love to tell their stories. Yeah. Well, so yeah, that's, that's what I hope to accomplish. I just, I hope that, you know, we can help as many addicts and alcoholics. Obviously, my focus is those addicts and alcoholics that are looking for something, something different. And, you know, this is all I know. I know recovery through the fellowship, through ANA. Not that I'm, you know, I'm trying to promote it because I can't, but this is how I got, this is my story. This is how I did it. I don't know any other way to do it. So if you're lost and you can't find your way, you might want to start here. Maybe this will just be the beginning, um, or maybe just like the rest of us, this is what sustains us. Mm. Thank you so much, O Omar, for speaking with me on Accentuate the Positive Radio. If you want to find out more about O's podcast, you can go to the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. You can also contact O, o at the Share podcast.com and also on iTunes. Just put in the share podcast and you'll find it on iTunes. Thanks again for being on the show. It's been wonderful to speak with you today. It's been wonderful, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. And keep up the good work. I promise I will. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. All right. Ciao, Karen. Thanks for joining me for another fascinating show on Accentuate the Positive. If you want to find out more about Omar, Omar Pinto and his share podcast, go to my website, karenswain.com slash Omar Pinto and you'll find out more there. There's lots to see on the website. You can book a session from me if you're interested in finding out more about who you are and what your purpose is here on this delicious land we live in or listen to fascinating interviews on radio. If you're listening on iTunes, remember to rate and review the show. Tell us what you think. And go to our Facebook page, Accentuate the Positive Radio with Karen Swain on Facebook. Catch you next time. Bye for now.